This inspiring message comes to you from Impact Church in Kingston, Ontario, where we are committed to living like Jesus and loving like Jesus. It is our prayer that this message blesses and enriches your life. For the last month, for those of you who may or may not have been here, um, we've been diving into the Bible to look at um, how to see things within the context that they were written. Um, And uh, we've carefully examined a few passages over the last month to make sure that we could do everything uh, that we could to discover the actual meaning, um, take into consideration things like history and culture and and, uh, the original languages. But today I want to share with you uh, two verses in particular um, that are wonderful verses. They're encouraging verses and they're promises from God. Uh, They're both frequently uh, quoted by many believers and I believe them to be true. Um, I believe them to say what they are, but I actually also believe that there's so much more to them than what meets the eye. And I do believe that at times um, they are taken out of context and uh, people sometimes make them something that they're not really. Um, So the two key verses for today are both found in Philippians chapter 4. And I have to say before I start that that Philippians is my favorite um, epistle, my favorite letter. It's a a phenomenal letter. If you want to land on one letter in the New Testament, I encourage you to read Philippians, the whole thing. It's only four chapters. Read it, take it in. If you want to quote something from the Bible, Pick a few verses from there. It's, it's really amazing, the riches that is in this particular book. It's a, it's a phenomenal um, little book. But I want to um, mention these two verses because you really can't explore one without the other. They're definitely tied together. It's Philippians 4.13. It says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And then a few verses later, it says, And my God shall supply all your need according to his riches in glory by Christ Jesus. The problem is that many times the Bible's been turned into what I call fortune cookie thoughts, where you you just, you know, you take one little um, thought and you're like, woohoo, that's awesome, I love it. And, And we don't always stop to consider that there's a whole meal behind that. The fortune cookie is really there if you like Chinese food, kind of to round off your meal and, you know, you break it open and there's some little saying that's usually really wacky, but, you know, anyhow. Um, but I want to say this morning, what, what we need to do when we look at anything in the Bible is we need to go digging to see what the whole meal is, to see what's behind those thoughts, behind those phrases that we find in the Bible. Um, so I want to start by just exploring that first verse, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. So if we look at this at first glance, and I would say kind of out of context, um, a lot of people have used this verse to just kind of try to get God in on their success. You know what I'm saying? Uh, Where it's like, okay, I need you right now, so could you just help me succeed? Um, Because I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, because that's a biblical promise, right? Anyone ever done that? Uh, Okay, you don't have to put up your hand, but like maybe like bat your eye. Okay, so there's a few that have done that. Okay. I won't tell anyone who you are, okay. But this verse has nothing to do with dunking a basketball or hitting a a game-winning home run or winning the lottery or or maybe um, closing a business deal or getting a good mark on exams, you know. Although God's with you in all of that. But I want to give context to this verse because there is so much more. 
There's so much more to this verse. The context of this verse was written, and I want to kind of back up and just give you a brief little lesson, um, history lesson for those of you who know me. I love this stuff. Uh, but to give you an idea of what the Philippian church was all about. So um, the apostle Paul, at the moment of this writing, when he's uh, writing the, the book of Philippians, or the letter to the Philippian church, he's actually under house arrest in Rome. So he is sitting in, um, he's imprisoned, He's awaiting his trial, which very likely he knows is going to lead to death, um, for preaching the resurrection of Jesus. And during that season when he's in jail, he writes this letter to the Philippian church that he absolutely loves. And if you read a lot of Paul's teachings and writings, you'll see that he takes a different tone depending on who he's speaking to. But when he's speaking to the Philippian church, his heart, you can just hear his heart through it. He's full of affection. He's full of gratitude. He is full of just this overwhelming love for this church. So I, I want to find out why. Why it is that he has such affection for this church. Because when he first started um, this particular church, it was during um, his second missionary journey. So it would have been around 50 A.D., um, and he saw a vision. He was actually about to take a second missionary journey, but he sees a man in a vision at night. And it's a, it's a man from Macedonia, which is in Greece. And in this vision, this man comes to him and he says, Paul, can you come and help us? And so he, he has this weird vision at night. This is all, uh, you can read about it in the book of Acts. Um, but he, he concludes from this vision that he's not to go back like he had thought and just visit the churches he had established on his first journey, but he actually ventures out at this point, and he travels over to Greece, to the province of Macedonia. And when he gets there, he takes, um, uh, it's in a Roman province, um, and he takes Silas with him, and so the two of them go on the, this missionary journey. Um, but I want to give the context that when they first visit Philippi, this is not a loving city. This is not a, a wonderful place to go. In fact, when he first gets there, um, there isn't even a synagogue, which shows that there, there wasn't even a Jewish crowd there enough to have a synagogue, let alone Christians. They were the first Christians to come to Greece. And so we know this because it says that they were worshiping by the river. That was very unusual for the Jewish people that liked to have a Jewish synagogue in every city. And so um, he's visiting this riverbank where they worship, and he starts to share about Jesus and about the resurrection of his, um, the power of his resurrection and who Jesus is. And so there's this businesswoman there, her name is Lydia, and she hears this message and she is captured. And, and it says that she is so taken with this that she begs them to come and stay with her while they're spending time in the city of Philippi. And so this is how the church started. I just want to give you context of where the church started. It started on a riverbank with not much of anything. They were portable. Yeah. You know, they came in. You know, they had their setup crew that came in and, you know, set up the chairs. And, and you know, they got the lights just right. And, and you know, you, you, you know, you know. And then, you know, they stayed after and plunged the toilets. You know. Um, <laughs> that was a shameless cry for help in that area, okay. Um, but <laughs> Jesus, you're so good. Um, just, I, I just want to do an altar call. If God is convicting you right now, this is your moment. Seize the moment and say yes. Say, anyhow, okay. You have to know me. I'm a kidder. So um, actually not. That's, that was totally serious. Um, <laughs> but you know how this church started? It started with a businesswoman named Lydia. 
And then Paul and Silas starts, start to just walk around and share Jesus right, right around in the city. And you know what happens? The slave girl who is possessed by a demon starts following them and actually irritating them. And, and she starts like calling out about who they are and that they're sent by God. And I kind of think that's really good promotion. <laughs> like, I thought that was cool. I, I mean, I don't know, but Paul didn't apparently. So he turns around and he's like, that's enough. You're irritating us. And so he actually delivered, he brings deliverance from Jesus to this girl. And so she has been owned by slave owners and she's a fortune teller because of this stuff that was going on in her life. But she gets delivered that day. And so don't you think that would be an awesome thing? Like, wow, first you, you preached at the riverbank and now, you know, this businesswoman who's probably very influential has given her heart to Christ and, and now you're walking along and this, this person gets delivered after years of being in bondage, just both physically and emotionally. But um, let's just say that the city of Philippi was not so keen on hearing about Jesus. So once they actually hear that this girl was delivered, they get angry because that was their way of making profit, right? So now they're losing money. So now they take Paul and Silas, they strip them down, and they beat them with rods. Wow, it got quiet. How is that for preaching Jesus? That's awesome. Go share with your friends. I guarantee they're not going to strip you down and beat you with rods, okay? But this is how this church started. And then, as if that wasn't bad enough, they get thrown into prison. And not just in prison, but it says that they were in the depth of the prison, which meant it's not like the prisons today. It was a little dungeon somewhere, and they put them in maximum security. They're in the deepest part of the prison, and as if it's not enough that they have been beaten and stripped, and they are now absolutely exhausted and in pain, and they're on lockdown, literally, they also put their feet in the stocks. So I have a question for you. How would you feel at this moment? Maybe a little bit defeated, yeah. Like, hey, Jesus, you told us to come here, so what's going on? But you know what they do? And this is so awesome. I hope you can grasp how this letter was written and where this started, how this church came to be. Because in that moment, they are sitting and where most of us would feel at least a little bit sorry for ourselves, right? Just a wee bit. And maybe discouraged, dismayed, maybe angry at God for not protecting them. Or you, you fill in the blank. You know how we felt those moments? It's like, God, I was doing your will and things aren't going my way. But you know what they start doing? They start singing. Here's a song. Nobody knows the troubles I've seen. Nobody knows my sorrow. That's what we would have sung. Come on. Are we being real? Are we being real? That's what we would have done. All right, Sarah, you could come join me. We could have like an awesome jazz fest here. No, but you know what they do? Instead of letting it get to them, they go, okay, we're doing something right. So they start singing, give thanks to the Lord, our God and King. Silas, his love endures forever, for he is good. He is above all things. His love endures forever. Sing praise, sing praise. Forever God is faithful. Forever God is strong, forever God is with us, forever and ever and ever. 
I can hear it. I can feel it. That was a psalm, and Jewish boys were, were required to memorize that very psalm. I bet you that's what they sang. I have no proof, but I'm going to ask them when I get to heaven. Or maybe they sang, you are good, good, oh, you are good, good, oh, you're never going to let, never going to let me down, you're never going to let, never going to let me down. Can you hear it? I can I don't know what you did on the screen there, but thanks if you were trying to follow along. That was completely ad-libbed, so don't worry about it. But you know what happened? They had this incredible experience when they chose to not get defeated by life's circumstances, not get defeated by what their enemies said that they should or shouldn't do. So you know what they did? They started praising, they started worshiping, they started declaring God's goodness, his faithfulness. And as they did, you know what happened? The ground starts shaking. And all of a sudden, the prison doors actually fling open. And their chains fall off, but not just Paul and Silas's chains. Everybody's chains fall off. So can I tell you this morning that when you're feeling defeated by life's circumstances, your response to God may be the keys to someone else's freedom. This is how the church started. This is the context of how they started. So... The jailer who's in charge of all these prisoners, he's freaking out and he's actually drawing his sword ready to kill himself because his penalty, if they escaped, was death. So he thought he'd just speed up the process. And he's freaking out. And Paul and Silas at that moment could have run. They could have got up and they could have been out of there. But instead they call out and they say, stop, don't do it. There's something you need to hear. And it says the jailer actually comes to them and he falls down and he says, what must I do to be saved? Because he recognizes that these are not ordinary men. These are not just men that are there because they like something and they want to share what they like and sell some, you know, product. They realize that there is a power at work in them on behalf of their God. And they start saying, what is this? Who is this God? And so the jailer actually takes Paul and Silas out of prison. They take them home. They start to clean their wounds, and they start to bandage them up. And they say, share with us. They gather their whole household in the middle of the night. And they share about who Jesus is. And at the end of that night, the whole household has given their hearts to Jesus Christ, and they get baptized all in one night. How would you like that? As for a great witnessing experience, right? So by that morning, by daybreak, the church has started. It's not kind of the normal church that, there was no advertising, there was no Facebook, there was no Twitter accounts, except the little birdies that went tweet, tweet, right? But this is how the church started, with a businesswoman, a slave girl, and a jailer. If you think that the New Testament church looked perfect, let me just say, like, I think this was a very interesting combination. So that's the background for how the church started. So when Paul then starts writing to them, they're living in a place where we already know that Christianity is not accepted. 
It's a Roman city. And the Romans were known for being absolutely inhumane and cruel. So if you did something that was not according to Roman customs, they would punish you. And Paul and Silas was without a trial. There was no system that they brought them through. But what's so amazing is that when Paul pens these words, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. They knew exactly what he meant. Because they knew how it started. They knew how that church was birthed. And they also knew the oppression that they were under. And we can only assume that there was terrible hardships because the book of Corinthians actually refers to the church in Philippi and how they were under so much pressure and persecution. And what's so interesting is that when we speak, when Paul speaks of this city, he actually calls it the church of Philippi because it was in the city of Philippi, but it actually comes from the Greek word phileo, which means brotherly love. And so this city has become known for its oppression of the Christians, but the Christians aren't letting themselves be oppressed. Instead, they are rising above their circumstances, and they're learning to love, they're learning to share, they're learning to take care of one another through the deepest, darkest moments of each other's lives. They are there, and they are known and loved by Paul as the church of brotherly love. Interestingly enough, of all the different focuses that Paul could have used when he wrote this letter, he talks a whole lot about joy. He talks about joy all the time throughout the whole letter. You can read it for yourself. But the words joy and rejoice and and gladness and, and to be glad is mentioned 19 times in four short chapters. Because he is bringing the Philippians back to remember what this is all about. You need to rejoice in all things. And I'm going to tell you again, just in case you forgot, that you need to rejoice and let your gentleness be known to all. And then he talks about how you need to find strength in joy in God. And so this is how this letter came to be. And then as he's writing this letter in Philippians chapter 2, he talks about how it's so important for them to have the mind of Christ. Because he knows that if they look at the circumstances around them, they're only going to be discouraged. And so he says, you have to have the mind of Christ. And he actually goes on to say, you need to set your mind on heavenly things. Because he knows that's the only way that they're going to continue to be able to find the joy of God is if they keep their minds on the things above. And then in chapter 3, verse 19, he actually contrasts that and says that there's people out there that are opposed to the preaching of the gospel. And he says, those are people, in verse 19, he says, that have their minds set on earthly things. And he actually goes on to say their God is their belly. What they care about is their immediate need. But their mind is not set on earthly things. So back to Paul writing this in prison now. So he knows he may be facing death, and he wants to leave them with something. He, these may be his last words to the Philippians, right? So he wants to leave them with something of importance that will carry them on. And I already quoted this verse, but Philippians 3.10 kind of sums up his attitude, and it says, I only care about one thing, that I may know him and the power of his resurrection and the fellowship of his sufferings being conformed to his death. Isn't that a great verse? Well, we like the first part, right? (laughs) We want to know the power of his resurrection, but Paul knew that that also means 
being part of sometimes the sufferings that Christ went through. I'm not talking about unjust suffering, but I'm talking about the persecution that they faced. So instead of being defeated by by these terrible circumstances that Paul is now in, he's in jail for preaching, he wants to teach this young church in Philippi that he can endure any and every circumstance, the ups and downs, the highs and lows, because he has a strength that can only come from Christ. This supernatural strength to endure every season, every situation, every circumstance is always with Paul, and that's what he's saying when he says, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. He actually goes as far as to say, to live is Christ. That's the only reason for him to live. He says to live is Christ and to die is gain. Because he knows in the, in the end, even if he faces death, which he knows he's facing, he says, well, then I just, I'm going to go be with him. But he actually says to them, but I don't want to go yet because I have things I want to share with you so that you can have these nuggets of truth that can endure for you throughout your seasons of life. But he's saying in this moment, I can do all things. I want to just give you a little snippet of, of Philippians chapter 4, which is the, the chapter that both these verses are found in. It starts off, first of all, in the first verse of chapter 4 by Paul, encouraging the Philippians to stand firm in their faith, remember, in sight of opposition. Secondly, he goes on to tell them to rejoice. And as if they were talking to a man who can't... Um, do two things at the same time. He's like, rejoice. Uh, Are you listening? Again, I say, rejoice. He's urging them to pay attention to how they are to live. And then he tells them in verse 6, not to worry, but to pray, to be thankful, and to present their requests to God. And he goes on, to say in verse 7 that that's how you can experience the peace of God despite any circumstance. Actually says, if you, are, are, if you rejoice in him always and then present your request to God with thanksgiving, it actually goes so far to say, and the peace of God that passes all understanding will guard your hearts and your mind in Christ Jesus. But you can't have that peace if your mind is on earthly things. You can't even have that promise if you're not focusing on the right thing. And after that, he commends them in verse 7 and on. He says, whatever is praiseworthy, whatever is noble, whatever is true, whatever is just, whatever is pure, set your mind on these things. Think on these things because he knows that that is the key for them to stay on track. And after all that, in chapter 4, he goes on to commend the Philippian church for their generosity in verse 10. See, in the beginning, when he was traveling and preaching and sharing the gospel, there was actually no church that supported him financially except the church of Philippi. It was the only church that would actually, um, if you will, sow into him or, or um, believe in his ministry, much like we do with, you know, we have our wonderful friend Gary Hayes, and he's traveling all over the world. And as a church, we're supporting him because we believe in what God is doing in him. We believe that he is as a vessel of today, a current day evangelist, preacher, apostle, whatever you want to call it, prophet, um, that is preaching and taking the gospel to nations that are yet untouched. But this is what the Philippian church did. They saw Paul, and they went, okay, there's something with that man, and we're going to support him. 
And so this is the only church, sadly. Can you imagine how many churches benefited from Paul's ministry, but only one supported him? And so he commends them and he says, thank you for supporting me so that I can continue to travel and preach and establish churches. Actually, he, he goes on to say that you supported me when, when he was in Corinth. Remember in the church of Corinth and he was there? Well, the Philippian church was what made it possible for him to go to Corinth. And then when he left Philippi and he traveled out of Macedonia, he went to Thessalonica. And guess who supported him? The Philippian church. While he's in prison in Rome, guess who sent aid to him? The church of Philippi. Because they believed in what God was doing in him and through him. So he's reminding them of how grateful he is, and he's commending them for their generosity. And then in verse 11 of chapter 4, he goes on to say, I'm not saying all this to you because I am in need. Because sometimes we hear preachers that are like, oh, thank you for supporting me, and can you support me some more so that I can buy myself my own golf course? That never happens these days. Um, but what he's saying is he, he's making it clear to them. He says, I'm commending you for your faith. I'm commending you for your generosity. I'm commending you for your heart of giving. And I'm not doing this. And listen carefully. It says in verse 11, not because I am in need. Do you know what the word need is in Greek? Hysterios. That's where we get hysterical from. Can I tell you how many Christians freak out? because they don't have everything that they think that they need and that they want, and so they get all out of, bent out of shape, and they get all hysterical because they, they think that they're, that they're losing control. And meanwhile, what they need to do is they need to look for the strength of Christ because that's all that they need. Circumstances change. Financial climates change. The stock market will continue to go up and down, and eventually it probably will all crash. But if you remain in Christ, you will not be shaken. So Paul is saying this, I'm not trying to tell you this because I'm in need. I'm not hysterical. I'm not freaking out. But he goes on to say, for I have learned something. And here's the key. By the way, the word I, interestingly enough, is the word ego. <laughs> Just saying. That's the Greek word. My ego has learned something here. Here's an incredibly important key. I have learned to be content. Can everyone say Content. That was a little bit reluctant. You're like, I don't want to say it because I can feel where she's going. So I have learned to be content. There you go. Whatever the circumstances, I know what it is to be in need. And I know what it is to have plenty. I have learned the secret of being. You know what that means? The Greek defines it like this, sufficient, strong enough, independent of external circumstances. That's what it means to be content. Independent of external circumstances, I have sufficiency in who? In Christ. Not in my circumstance, not in my finances. I have security in Christ. He goes on to say, in any and every situation, whether well-fed or hungry, whether living in plenty or in want, he did it all. He had tried it all. 
But then he goes on, and here is our first key verse. But I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. That's the context. This verse is not about achievement. It's about allowing Christ's power to sustain us in difficulty, in scarcity, as well as in abundance. Many times, you know, when we come to Jesus, we come to him when we feel we need something, when we're hysterical. You know those moments where you're like, ah, I'm freaking out, God, I don't know what I'm going to do, and I need you right now, like right now. And then we pray to him and we're like, Jesus, you said that you would, you know, I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me, so you need to come and you need to strengthen me right now. Anyone ever done that? Okay, I see people turning their heads, so I'm going to assume that that would be something that some of you have experienced, right? But the reality is that when we come to him like that, he is gracious enough that most of the time he actually comes and he meets us right in that moment. But you know what we're experts at? Well, now I'm feeling good. I feel good, that and that and that and that, as I know that I should. And then we forget all about him. Is that not true? So we come to him when we're in need. And we say, I need your strength. I need your comfort. I need your whatever, fill in the blank. But then as soon as we have what we feel we need, then we don't need him anymore because then we're good to go on our own. So what Paul is saying in this verse, and I hope that you can capture, because it's actually life transforming. When you capture what this says, Paul is saying, I am desperate for you in every moment, whether I have nothing or whether I have much, whether I'm in need or whether I have plenty, whether I am going hungry and I don't even have enough food to put in my belly, or whether I'm well-fed and I'm full and I have everything that I need in all things. I can do anything through Christ who strengthens me. He's talking about a dependence on the power of God that cannot come outside of a surrender to him in every situation. Jesus wants you to be in need of him in every situation. He wants you to be desperate for him in every situation. This is about a surrender of your heart, not a hysterical moment to meet your need. I want you to hear me this morning because your life will change when you learn to understand that all that we need is the power of Christ. Because you know what will happen when we have that assurance and when we have the same desperation when we're in need as we have when we have plenty. What will happen is that things won't go to our head because we will stay humble and reliant on the strength of Jesus Christ no matter what. That's why sometimes it's not a bad thing to experience some challenging circumstances because it reminds us that we need him. But it's in those moments that we need to understand that that same strength needs to carry us through the good times. If our lives are centered around the word of God, then through Christ we can learn to be content both while in need and in abundance. But it doesn't change our sense of need for him. It's always there. And it's the same. It doesn't change because of circumstances. That's what he's after. He wants a surrendered heart this morning. I love looking at 
the original languages to see what it's actually saying. And so I, I looked up what this word actually means. I can do all things through Christ who strengthens me. And that word strengthen is actually en dynamo, which comes from the same root as dunamis, which is the power of God, the power of the Holy Spirit. It's where we get the word dynamite from. In Acts chapter 1, verse 8, when the New Testament church is gathering for prayer and they are having an awesome deeper night, you know what I'm saying? Like they're just minding their own business, praying to Jesus. And all of a sudden, this incredible power, dunamis, the same word used for strength, comes on the early church and it happens. And Jesus says, you shall receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you, and you shall be witnesses of me in Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. Jesus is actually forewarning and telling his disciples that you cannot be my witnesses. You cannot do what I've asked you to do without the dynamite power of the Holy Spirit. So you need to wait till you've got it. Don't go out and do it on your own because you're going to need the strength that can only come from the dunamis power of the Holy Spirit. Can I say that there is Christians today that want the favor of God apart from the power of God? It doesn't work that way. If you want the favor of God and the strength of God, you have to accept that it comes through the power of the Holy Spirit in your life. And it is so awesome because Jesus, when he was on earth, was limited in time and space. That's why the crowds followed him. But the Holy Spirit isn't. He is with you in every circumstance, through every circumstance, no matter where you are. And so we need to recognize that in order to be strengthened by Christ, we have to accept the power of God, the dynamite power of God. I say it this way, we can't just seek success and his benefit without seeking his power, continuously. Not just when we feel like we need it. 2 Timothy 1, uh, sorry, chapter 3, verse 1, and then goes on to verse 4 and 5, talks about that in the last days, these, these teachers will come, these men will come, and he lists all these things that they're awful, terrible people. I didn't put all that in there. <laughs> but just, yeah, you can see in those verses, it's like people that do this, that, and it lists a whole bunch of sins. But then it says, they are lovers of pleasure rather than lovers of God. But look at what they do. They have a form of godliness, but they deny its dunamis. We are living in those days where people are doing a whole bunch of bad things, and they want a form of godliness, they want a form of religion, but they're actually denying the very power that rose Jesus from the dead because they don't know what to do with it. If you want Christ to strengthen you, then there's only one way, and it's to surrender your heart to the power of Christ in you. Romans 1.16, I love this verse. It says, For I am not ashamed of the gospel because it is the power of God. Guess what word they're using? It is the dunamis of God for salvation. That's what happened in the prison cell. He saw the dunamis power of God, that jailer did, that centurion. And he came and he said, What is it that you have because I need it? I'm not ashamed of the gospel of Jesus Christ because it is the power of God unto salvation for everyone who believes, first the Jew, then the Gentile. Actually, the word in the original 
for strength and actually shows a present and continued sense. So really, if you want to read it out in the English uh, as it's written kind of in the original Greek, it says this, through Christ who is strengthening me and does continually strengthen me, it's by his constant and renewed strength and power that I am enabled to act in everything, wholly dependent on him for all my spiritual power. That's more like what the verse is really saying. And then he goes on to say, as if that wasn't good enough, and we could just have camped there this morning. Then he goes on to say, yet it was good of you to share in my troubles. Verse 14. We don't like sharing in people's troubles, right? We just want the good parts. But he goes, it was good of you to share in my troubles. However, moreover, um, as you Philippians know, in the early days of your acquaintance with the gospel, and I set out from Macedonia, not one church shared with me in the matter of giving and receiving except only you. So he's coming back to this. He says, I can do all things. It doesn't matter. I'm not in need because I have Christ who strengthens me. But I want to commend you because you were the only ones that saw what I needed. In 2 Corinthians, he's actually talking to the city of Corinth about the Philippian church. And he says this, And now, brothers and sisters, we want you to know about the grace that God has given me, given the Macedonian churches, in the midst of a very severe trial. He's speaking of the Philippians. Their overflowing joy... Remember, the whole theme of Philippians is joy. And their extreme poverty welled up in rich generosity. In their extreme poverty, generosity welled up. Is that not awesome? Because they too were not dependent on circumstance. They were dependent on the strength of Jesus. In obedience to him. Then he goes on to say, For I testify that they gave as much as they were able and beyond their ability. And then he goes on to say, Be like them. That's the next few verses. He basically says, Learn from them and be like them. Because they have a key to something, not in circumstance, because they were persecuted, but in strength and in focus. And then in this context, we're going to return to verse 19 now. Then Paul says, and my God shall supply your need according to his riches and glory by Christ Jesus. It's like he leaves it to God to make amends for the kindness that they had showed him. Right? It's, it's like he's saying he shall do it not only as your God, but as my God who takes what is done to me as done to himself. You supplied my needs according to your poverty, and he shall supply your needs according to his riches. But Christians love to fortune cookie that one. And say, well, my God shall supply all my needs. So God, why aren't you supplying my needs? And then they get mad at God as if he's not faithful. Can we be serious for a moment? Like, it happens. Where Christians actually hold a grudge against God because they're like, well, you said you were going to supply all my needs. So why aren't you? And they have this, they're grumpy. And God's like, but, but you're not living according to the principle that I laid out. Do you know that the prosperity that he's speaking of is only possible if we live within the obedience to the word of God? Actually, Ray calls it like this. Pastor Ray has a, an awesome saying. She basically says you have to stay within the economy of God's word. Because you can't make a withdrawal on his promise unless you submit yourself to that economy. It's like having a budget. You can't take things out of the budget that's not there. Well, you, you can. It's called credit cards. It's bad. 
right? Because then you're in debt. And Jesus says that there's only one debt we should have, and it's our debt of our lives to him. And so he's commending the Philippians as saying, when you were in poverty, generosity welled up in you because they had understood the principle of generosity. They had understood the principle of obedience. And so Paul is saying in response to them, verse 19, he's saying, because you took care of me, because when you were in need, you didn't stop giving, you didn't stop sowing, you didn't stop trusting, you didn't start believing. Because of this, my God shall supply your need according to his riches. In glory. So don't get mad at God. Got super quiet in here. Can I say it like this? And you've probably heard me, if you've been around me, you've heard me say this before. You can't have Bible promise without living according to Bible principle. You just can't. But God's heart is longing to pour out his promises on your life. So our job is to come to the word and say, God, where do you need to adjust me? Where do I have fear? What fear needs to break so that I can surrender to your word, surrender to your will? Hebrews 10, 23, I love this. It says, let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. Sometimes we don't always see things the way we hoped they would go, but God is still faithful. And we can hold on to the promise of him. Verse 19 really is like a picture of Psalm 1. Verse 1 to 3, it says this, Blessed is the one who does not walk in step with the wicked or stand in the way of sinners or sit in the company of mockers, but whose delight is in the law of the Lord, who meditates on his law day and night. That person is like a tree planted by streams of water which yields its fruit in season and whose leaves do not wither. God wants you to be planted by the stream. Water always talks about the word of God. And then he says, if you focus on the word of God, if you make the word of God alive in your own heart and start living according to those principles that God is laying forth, then you will be like a tree that will bear fruit in season and the leaves won't wither because his desire for you is his promises in every area. The reality is that we want God to supply all our needs, but we have to be willing to know God's word and to live in accordance with the boundaries or budget of his word. We need to keep our focus on the right thing. That's why Paul said that he's learned to rely on Jesus for strength because his focus is on the right thing. And then God can release his promises. And it's interesting, I want to close with actually a passage from Matthew that Jesus spoke. But it's interesting because in this passage, Paul is speaking about finances because he knows that finances, fear of what's going to happen can grip our hearts, right? That it's, it centers in people's lives. It's something that can cause a lot of anxiety for people. And so Luke 12, 15 says this, um, Jesus said to them, watch out and be on guard against all kinds of greed. Remember the wanting of the plenty? Because life doesn't consist in an abundance of possessions. Life consists of knowing the power of Christ in our life. 
But he knows that this is a sore spot. Yes, I talked about money. I'm sorry. But he knows it's a sore spot. He knows that people get fearful, and he doesn't want you to be fearful. Can I say this morning, when he talks about providing your needs, he's not the least bit concerned about your money. He actually doesn't need your money. He's God of the universe. He doesn't need your money, but he needs your heart. That's why he's not afraid to address it because he wants freedom in your heart because just like they said to the Philippians, he says, now remember to focus on the right thing. Have your mindset on, on, not on worldly things because it'll d- detract you and, and distract you from the promises of God. Have your mindset on heavenly things. This is why I think Jesus wants to give us freedom so that he can Supply our needs. And, and by the word, the, the word need has to do with necessity. Sometimes we take needs as wants. But, and God can supply your wants too just because he's God. But God desires to make sure you're okay. That is a promise. And he wants to fulfill that promise in your life. But as I was reading Philippians chapter 4 over and over this week, I actually came and I saw this parallel story that Jesus shares in Matthew chapter 6. And it's actually, if you think about it and look at it, it's the same outline as Philippians chapter 4. It starts off in verse 21 where Jesus says, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Because he knows that many times we focus on where our treasure is, where our investment is. And so he is speaking about wanting freedom from your heart. That's the context we're coming into. And then he goes on to say, no one can serve two masters. Either you'll hate the one and love the other, you'll be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. You can't. That's why we get so freaked out when when our needs aren't met because sometimes we just slip into this mode where it's all about money. But it's not about money. It's about finding your strength in Jesus Christ and letting him supply your need. And I want to start with that because it goes on to say the verses that we know very well. Therefore, I tell you, do not worry about your life, what you will eat or drink, or about your body, what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothes? Look at the birds of the air. They do not sow or reap or store away in barns, yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not much more valuable than they? Can any of you, by worrying, add a single hour to your life? And why do you worry about clothes? See how the flowers of the field grow. They do not labor or spin. Yet I tell you that not even Solomon in all his splendor was dressed like one of these. If that is how God clothes the grass of the field, which is here today and is tomorrow thrown in the fire, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? And do not worry saying, what shall we eat and what shall we drink and what shall we wear? For the pagans run after these things. And your heavenly Father knows that you need them, that you have necessity of them. But here's the clue, and this is just what Paul is saying in Philippians. But seek first. Can you say first? Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. And I could substitute the end of this verse and say, and my God shall supply your need according to his riches and glory. Except Jesus said, and all these things will be given to you as well. But his desire for you is that you seek his kingdom first. That you put his power first 
in your life, that you are so desperate for him, that you don't just seek him when you're in need, but that you seek him when you abound, when you have everything that you need. He wants you to be totally and completely dependent upon him. I feel like God is challenging us with two things this morning. First one is is a complete surrender to him, a total and complete dependence on him in and through every circumstance, not independence when things are going well. And the second thing is, I feel like he's challenging us to total obedience to his principles. And as I was preparing this week, I felt like God actually just dropped a phrase in my heart for today, for you and for me. I feel like he said this, when you surrender, you can experience my power. And when you obey, you can experience my promise. Thank you for taking the time to listen to one of our messages from Impact Church. We hope and trust that this message encouraged you. If you want to find out more information about our church, check us out online at www.impactkingston.com. 